I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old, Emily. The opioid epidemic has claimed so many young, amazing lives, including that of 26-year-old Brian Blomberg. His mother, Denise, and I have become friends. Our children died within a month of each other. And Denise joins me now to talk about why she has been so public with Ryan's story, to share his story with us, and to talk about how she has dealt with grief and what lessons she's learned along the way. Thank you for being here, Denise. Thank you for having me, Angela. Start off by talking a little bit about the kid that Ryan was before a chemical or a substance ever entered the picture. Ryan was an amazing young man. He was the third of our four children. Uh, the third boy, followed by his sister, and had a huge heart, uh, inquisitive. The, uh, you know, the world was just wide open for him. He was gifted musically with languages, uh, intelligent and just so caring. And it, uh, you go back and you try to micro dissect after you lose a child to go back and look at their childhood on, did we do something wrong? That's the and, first instinct, and, to right, blame yourself. Right. What, what did I do wrong? How did I go wrong? We think we're you know, all powerful or something. Exactly. And what Ryan used to say uh, when he was in recovery was, I came from the most loving, normal background. When you look at stories or what the public perception is of addiction, my childhood couldn't have been any more textbooked. And so that, you know, that, that doesn't let us off the hook, but it certainly gives us some peace that, you know, there wasn't one defining moment that we went, boy, that was just a left-hand turn. We shouldn't have gone down. Was there something in his personality that now, looking back in hindsight, that you see that, oh, oh, this is the type of kid who does become addicted or is attracted to this world of drugs and is looking for an escape? That's very true. You know, Ryan was very creative, very artistic, very intelligent. And oftentimes, those are the kids who seek out that kind of one-time thrill, and it becomes something that they, you know, get sucked into. And when it was only when Ryan was in recovery that we were able to go back and he was able to talk about that and talk about defining moments, not necessarily by the day or date, but that, you know, it was the lure, kind of the thrill of the hunt. It was something that was not necessarily illegal or immoral, but it was everybody else was doing it, so I might do that as well, because I got this. I also think that creativity, Emily was an artist. She was super creative. She was also a very sensitive child, and over and over again, I hear that similarity among people who find themselves addicted. They, they don't have that harsh, outer, protective layer about them. Exactly. And that is something that Ryan and I share a very common bond of. We talked about this a lot and at great length when he was in recovery about the fact that um, you want to be the fixer, you want to be the helper. And when you can't fix or help your own life because it's spiraling, spiraling out of control, 
it, it's easy to turn to something else. And in this case, that was an opioid addiction. How old was Ryan when he started using substances? You know, that's that's always tough to go back and figure out, you know, was there a defining moment? And uh, from what we can piece together, and again, we had the gift of having a son that was in recovery for nearly two years. So he talked to you and he told you He talked to things. us a yes, great I deal. Didn't. I mean, we were able to, it wasn't like I quizzed him and said, well, remember the time you did that? What did this mean? It wasn't like that at all. It was things that came out. And so I'm grateful for that because we do have some peace. But I would say probably in high school, you know, sophomore year, uh, starts with cigarettes, kind of progresses into marijuana. It wasn't until about halfway through his senior year that we noticed a marked personality change. And it was obviously he was using some other substance, but we couldn't quite pin down, well, what did that look like? Because we were very naive. You know, we didn't have a history of addiction. We didn't know what that looked like. So it's hard. It's a little bit different than if you've got a child that drinks alcohol or does things that are more obvious. Drugs are a little bit more covert. I, I agree with you because Emily wasn't a drinker. No. And there were personality changes. And I just felt like I was desperate to try to, to stop this. I saw this like I was trying to stop this freight train uh, starting in high school. Uh, and I may, probably made a lot of wrong moves in trying to figure out what was she doing and, and, and maybe tracking her too much and, you know, trying to stop uh, the behavior because I just saw that it would end in pain. And certainly it did. Uh, did ab- you have that absolutely. same experience where you, you know, you tried punishments or you tried different methods? I mean, I, just, I did a parenting class on oppositional kids, you know, teenagers who were giving you trouble to try to figure out how to navigate that. But nothing seemed to work. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I went so far as to when Ryan would leave the house and and I would ask him where he was going, I would go sit down the block from mm-hmm. a house that he was at that was a friend's and and just be watching and uh, you know, almost like I was trying to prove a point. I felt so consumed because I was convinced that what he was doing was wrong. Now, did that change that at all? No. It almost became an obsession, if you will, for right. me to what can I do to stop? And then in the meantime, you've got you've got your other children who are, you know, have a lot of animosity towards the child that's getting all the illegal t- attention. And they're like, hey, you know, the we're negative attention. Yeah, right. we're great kids. We're doing wonderful things. Right. And and then uh you know, Ryan's dad was very much, uh, how do you know that he's doing these things? What makes you the expert? And, you know, my background is working in a hospital emergency department. It doesn't, you know, I'm not a clinical person, but when you see behaviors and you see people, you know something's wrong. Well, and I'm a reporter. I know exactly. how to find things out. So she exactly. would always be surprised if I would catch her in a lie. And I would say, well, you know, I am an investigative reporter, yeah. but that con- that consuming, all-consuming. Exactly. I didn't sleep, I swear, for seven years. I mean, I was always so worried all the time, and I was always trying to think, what could I do next, or what could I take her to this counselor? Could I try this? Could I try that? Uh, I didn't think she was going to die, but I was just really worried she was going to mess up her life in a major way. And she was so gifted and talented, like Ryan was. Exactly, and, you know, he, he participated in um, – in a program that was a joint dual credit program his senior year and was so, uh, you know, looking forward to going to, to a vocational school and, and wanted to go into something uh, in languages. I mean, he even tested, did the ASVAB test because he thought about being a linguist in the he Air spoke Force. Spanish. Yeah, exactly. You spoke fluent Spanish. He started a full-time job as a 16-year-old at a bank card company as a Spanish interpreter. 
And and so he he didn't lack in talent or education, but it was just that he was so smart, too smart for his own good. And it was uh, when he, you know, he didn't have a lot of brushes with law enforcement. Emily, neither. Exactly. Yeah. And so when uh, when the, the piece I had, you talked about kind of not sleeping, there were two or three different times that Ryan was put into jail for various offenses. And I... I had a great amount of peace knowing that he was behind bars. And that's horrible for any mother to have to know the number of the Minnehaha County Jail uh, when it pops up. But know that, uh, and I remember thanking the person who called me to tell me he was there. I said, thank you for giving me peace. And they probably thought I was just an idiot. But I really did mean that. I knew he was safe because he was behind bars. That's horrible. I I feel like the opioid crisis is claiming some of the most exceptional people that are out there. They're artists, they're sensitive, they're talented, they're smart. And I I don't know why certain personality types or people with certain genes end up struggling with the disease of addiction, but it seems to be a, a very common theme when I parent after parent that I speak to. It is. And, in, you know, I, I travel a great deal in my profession. And the one thing I have found on this journey is it's it's almost kind of like the analogy when you buy a red car, you think that you have the only red car in the neighborhood. And then you notice that everybody on the street has a red car. What I have found about addiction, recovery, and just the opioid crisis is there's not one family. I challenge you to find one family or person in this country that has not been directly or indirectly impacted by a loved one, a friend, an acquaintance, et cetera. It used to be that we didn't know people that had cancer or other you know, chronic diseases, but now it's a touch point. And it really, as I've been transparent in this journey, it has allowed other people to share their stories of their concerns or their loss of a loved one. Not that we're all members of a big club that we wanted, didn't ever want to be a member of, but it it gives you some peace knowing that you're not alone because that's the first thing you think when you've got a child who's in addiction is, oh, wow, I'm the only person on the planet that's ever had this happen. And you feel like a failure Exactly, as a exactly. And so, and I and I don't know if it's the, the mother mentality. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of very concerned dads and Ryan's very loving father. Um, but uh, I think it's mother's intuition. A lot of it is mother's intuition. Yeah, I think you're right. So Ryan had, had gotten in some trouble with the law. He, um, did you know what his substance of choice was as he got older before he went to treatment? You know, we never were able to, uh, for about two or three years, Ryan would kind of float in and out of our lives. He How tech, old was he? He was in his early 20s, mm-hmm. and so he you would go from... can't control an adult child. No, you can't, and, and he would be staying with nameless, faceless people. We only knew them by their first name, and they would be... I, I even went to the point where he would tell me where, where approximately they lived, and I would go drive around blocks of Sioux Falls looking for his car. I was that desperate to find him and to try to make some sense and try to just shake him. But he would he would come home. He would he would look more and more unkempt. You know those mm-hmm. characteristics yes. that you see about somebody who's using a substance. We really didn't quite know because it's not like you see track marks. Uh, you no. there was no there was no obvious. Um, a lot of people have asked me, well, was there was he on prescription pain medications or thing like that? Nothing, nothing like that. So we really weren't quite sure what his drug of choice was. I had enough medical background to know what meth use or meth abuse might look like because there's some obvious obvious physical signs 
and and uh, I wasn't seeing that. So it was kind of like I know there's something the matter, but I couldn't quite figure out it out. And we tried a um, a course of uh, of treatment here locally for a month, about a year and a half prior to when Ryan went into uh, treatment in 2016. And it was almost like a 30-day vacation and a joke. It was not taken seriously. Um, you know, they did the best they could, but their facility was not equipped for manipulative drug addicts. It was more focused on alcoholism. And ironically, uh, Ryan told me when he was in recovery, I mean, he's not a drinker. And he said it's not uncommon to find people who are drug addicts that don't drink. The biggest difference is drugs are illegal. Alcohol is legal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we... Um, I think that to let's just touch back up just for a moment when he went to treatment for the first time I think as a parent we all want the fix the cure the treatment that is going to work and this is just such an area that we as a society have not put enough resources and attention into to really figure out how to truly help people because no two addictions are alike and so and often part of the course is relapse and I think that it's so hard because you just want to get them into treatment and think everything's going to be okay. Did you think that? I, I think we were idealistic um, as as it progressed. I mean, he was not there under any sort of court order. He could have walked out, you know, a day or two in. But he stayed? But, but he stayed, and uh, we went for family day. And it was when I sat with these other parents, and a lot of them, children, uh, you know, in their 70s and 80s, whose adult children were in their 40s and 50s, and they were sharing, this was their 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th time through treatment, and this was Ryan's first, and I'm thinking, dear God, we've got this ahead of us the rest of our life, and it was, uh, you know, he, he left there that Friday night, and I have no doubt that by that next night he was using again. You know, I can't, he wasn't at our house, or he wasn't you know, we didn't see him, but I knew that he had gone back. It was just, like I said, it was vacation. It was not something you took seriously. The addict has to want help in order to receive help. But I've also heard studies that say that if you take, if someone kind of goes unwillingly to do an intervention or you kind of force the issue, that that can be just as effective as someone seeking it out on their own. You know, it can be. I think the defining moment for us was in early May of 2016. Ryan had come home on one of those days when he graced me with his presence. I work from home when I'm not traveling, and so I knew something was up. He looked like somebody had beat him up. And I confronted him, of course, because that's what mothers do. They, We confront instead of you know, we tried different approaches, enabling, being kind, not being kind. I mean, none of them work. And I looked at him and I said, you, you got beat up. I was concerned for his safety. And he was obviously high. He left that day and um, it was a warm, warm May day and went and kind of slept off his high in a grocery store parking lot. And as he's laying there in his car, um, obviously a young young kid that's out in the parking lot getting, you know, carts out of there, saw him looking, you know, beat up, laying in a car, not moving, and called and went back and told the supervisor who called the police. And the next thing you know, Ryan has a nice knock on his, um, on his car window. And obviously when you're coming out of a high, you're paranoid. And that gave them cause to search his car where they found an empty syringe and and took him to jail. And I remember getting that phone call um, because he had to be medically cleared to go to jail. And it was from an ER physician I used to work with for many years who was calling me to tell me, you know, Ryan had given him permission to call me and let me know what had happened. And I just remember thinking to myself, he's safe. He's, He's in jail. Now what do we do? And that began, that was the, the lowest moment 
to what became uh, nearly two years of an amazing recovery journey. Where he went to Hazelden in the cities. Exactly. And what we did. How did you end up there? Well, basically, we knew that there was nothing local. And that's one of the things that both you and I have been on a crusade of. We have nothing in our state or our region or local that until Avera opened their new addiction care center that focused and was, uh, you know, available to people that was going to work. And so we, I did my research. I, I called Hazelden. You feel like you're applying to go to college. They do a lot of assessments. Ryan had to agree to have an assessment, which he did. I said, we're at... What we, made him agree? You know, I think it was... I think it was some soul searching when he finally realized he had hit rock bottom, you know, be, being charged with a felony. Now, see, I hate that word rock bottom. Well, I think you know, rock I do too. I think it was. Is, is death or exactly. brain damage. No, no. And but he I, definitely had hit a low point. He'd hit the lowest point where he knew it was kind of like being trapped back in the corner. He knew that he was facing charges, felony uh, possession charges, because of what they found in his car. And when he when he appeared before the judge that day in the you know after when he was incarcerated, I remember sitting in the back of the courtroom and and that's basically he bought himself time by going into treatment and so our recovery journey began Memorial Day weekend of 2016. And how did it go? You know, it's like taking your child to summer camp. We drove off uh, that day. You know, we you Hazelden is an amazing place. They're inpatient campuses north of the Twin Cities. It is idyllic Minnesota on a lake. Um, Hazelden has a reputation in the past of being, you know, very famous for where rock stars go. But it's common people from all economic and social classes from all over the country that come there. And did Ryan like it right away? Did he feel like he belonged there and would get help? You know, I have a picture of Ryan laying on a bed in a hotel in North Minneapolis because we had a we had a specific time window that we had to arrive. And I remember trying to rouse him. We had had we had gone that night before to get toiletries and everything that you would need. It was almost, like I said, like taking your child to summer camp. So we I rousted him. You know, he was obviously he slept in the back seat of the car, curled up in a fetal position the entire way up there. So I knew that he had probably used until the moment he came that morning, home that morning and knew we were leaving. And so we arrived. They take him in one area to do an intake. They uh, take us in another room to go through the financial process. We were, the only reason Ryan was able to get help there was through the generosity and kindness of strangers. And that would be... Because they have scholarships. They have scholarships. Which is what we're working on, Families Hope. Absolutely. And so that's why I so applaud what you were doing, Angela, because it is so necessary. We had had health insurance that agreed to pay out of network. I mean, we're talking 30 days of inpatient treatment. That's not cheap. And we are not affluent people, nor are your average parents in in today's world. Right, middle class. Exactly. And so uh, we, it was, it all was over in about an hour. And, And typically... Um, when people come in, they're looking, they're detoxing. And, and Ryan's was very brief. They held him in their acute area for probably 36 hours because, you know, opioids come out of your system pretty quickly. And we drove off that day and drove back towards Minneapolis looking at each other like, what the hell had we just done? I mean, we just took our child and signed him up, knowing that by that night he could have signed himself out, but he didn't. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because then that was followed by two years of sobriety. Exactly. And Ryan Ryan worked the program 
like you were supposed to. I mean, we could. What have... do you think changed inside of him that made him really want to do that? I'm, legal troubles and everything else aside. You know, in our legal troubles, by comparison with a lot of the Rel- parents, relatively minor. Yeah, yeah, were relatively minor. So, and what was it inside of him? Did he ever share with you? You know, what he did share was through his journal that I read after his death. Um, oh. I had bought him a little dollar journal uh, the night we were, you know, carousing around buying toiletries. And I said, you might want this because they're probably going to ask you to write, uh, you know, your thoughts. And he grumbled at me. And it was that journal on those first 30 days of treatment that gave us so much insight. And that first week, you know, they don't allow them to call home. You're just kind of knowing that they're safe, but you're kind of wondering what's going on. You can call and check on them. But the one thing that he did write was um, he was very angry. But he knew that he could leave any minute. And he first phone call we got, he said, you know, somebody got kicked out of here today because their insurance, uh, you know, won't pay anymore. And I think he was waiting for that to happen. And it didn't for him. And it, when I re- read his journal after his death, he talked about how he went from that, about the first 10 days went from being angry at the world and at everyone that ever had done anything wrong and realizing this is on me and I have the most loving and supportive family and my normal friends are supportive my addict friends they just want to suck me back in but I read that I saw that shift and you know obviously we didn't see that because he wasn't here but it gave that gave us great peace just hearing the tone of his voice when he would call it wasn't it went from being accusatory and blaming to owning up and saying this is my problem I need your help mom and dad well, I'm so glad that he had that, and I'm so glad that you have that journal. You know, he he got out of treatment, and then when did he move to Minneapolis? Because he really, he was like the poster child for recovery, right? He was. Uh, he transitioned right after the 4th of July. Uh, we Like I mentioned, his uh, sobriety date is the end of May, is their clean date. I believe it's May 29th, May 30th. I used to have it committed to memory, and I, I've forgotten today. But you transition after 30 days of inpatient treatment, Ryan decided that his best chance for success was to stay in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So Hazleton has what they call a fellowship campus in downtown St. Paul that's an intensive outpatient treatment. You live on campus. You're going to therapy Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. There are certain rules that you follow. Uh, You're not permitted off campus or getting a job. I mean, you earn those privileges. And he did that for nearly another eight weeks and then transitioned into a sober living house, which... Um, I'm I'm so f- glad to see Sioux Falls somewhat embracing the sober living concept because that is key. That is key because you've got to take the addict and not make them insular to the rest of the world, but you've got but to... But also they can't go back to the same they people. They cannot go back to the things. same people. Yeah. And so Ryan made that decision that he was going to say in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and um, transition to that. At that point, he was able to then start looking for a job. Before his death, was there a pattern of relapse? Not at all. That is the probably the hardest thing for us to deal with because Ryan worked. The the other thing that was advantageous about being in the Twin Cities, the statistics that Hazelden puts out is that one out of every three CEOs of companies in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area is in recovery. That's a pretty 
that's a pretty large percentage. But when you look at the job that they have done and they recovery, the recovery community is so amazing up there. I wish that you could replicate that all over the country. That would at least give cities hope. Because they often say that the solution to addiction is connection. Absolutely. And so Ryan um, had interviewed for a job and it was interesting because the guy who interviewed him said, I can't legally ask you this, but are you in recovery? And Ryan said, I am. And he said, so am I, 25 years clean. And he had come to hate, he had come to the uh, Twin Cities to go into recovery that many years ago. But it's just the inner, the 12-step the, the lingo, the language, the understanding of the 12 steps, no matter what your addiction is, that is that common denominator when you talk about connection. And so he was going to four or five NA meetings a week. But a lot of the crux of addiction is shame. Even though somebody appears that they're on top of their addiction, relapse is is almost like uh, the, the equi- equivalent of falling off the wagon when you go on a diet. But it can cause death. And in this case, there were no signs, there were no trouble signs until a couple of days before he died. There were just some things that weren't right with that he his behavior had changed. And after we do kind of a micro dissection of those last like 48 hours of his life, we think that he was having some pain that he wanted to mask. He had had two friends in Sioux Falls who had died of overdoses in the previous month. He had come back for one of those funerals, and I think that impacted him. I mean, obviously, it didn't cause his death, but it got him to a point where he that he bought a hit of heroin from an anonymous person that had no connection, and it ended up being enough fentanyl to kill five people. So Ryan did not intend to die that day. Uh, as a, you know, he should have just gotten sick from not using for so long. Oh, wow. And also there's a similarity to Emily's story that you've shared with me that his friends were working on an intervention because they suspected. Exactly. And so that's why his friends have shared with us, and we've really adopted kind of the, the phrase of leave nothing left unsaid. Leave it out on the table because you never know in so many cases, what day will be your last. But for us, our, our world changed on April 10th of 2018. But his friends were planning an intervention. Right, they were. They were. And that's something that, you know, they we all live with a different guilt or a different slant, and we all grieve differently, even within our own family. Um, his siblings had started to reconcile with him. You know, his dad and I were at different places. For me, the the strength that I have, Angela, is that I had a child that was in recovery for nearly two years, a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And so when people try to put you in the same group of you had a child die of an addiction, you're all a member of one club. You really, that's the only common denominator. The stories are as unique as the people we're talking about. Yeah, that's very true. Like no two addiction is Exactly. One thing I wanted to share with our audience that I've, I share with audiences when I speak and I tell Emily's story was that on the day that she died, May 16th of 2018, mm-hmm. I was ironically working on a story on overdoses and Good Samaritan laws. And while I had no idea what exactly she was using, we were planning the intervention. I knew that. I never thought she was using heroin. I thought it was pills, maybe some marijuana. And so we're planning this intervention, and um, I'm working on this story and at the same, about the same period of time, and I, and I call different parents because I'm working on starting overdoses and how people need to call for help if they're in a group and someone overdoses. And I spoke with three parents, and you were one of them on the day that my daughter died. And I 
speak often to people. I tell this story, and I say I learned, I later realized, not on that day and not in that moment, but within a few days, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I because I just was like, why was I talking to these parents whose kids had overdosed and then my child overdoses? I learned some very valuable lessons from each one of those parents. And the thing that I learned from you, because we didn't get that chance to get Emily into recovery, mm-hmm. but what I learned is there's always the what ifs. Oh, what if we would have acted a week sooner? What if? But what I learned from you, which is comforting to my heart, I guess it takes away maybe some guilt, is that we could even have gotten her into recovery and she still could have relapsed two years or three years or however long later and died anyway because of the fentanyl in the drug supply out there. So I that was a very valuable lesson I learned. And then you contacted me shortly after that to tell me. And, and Ryan and Emily had gone to the same elementary schools. You know, as had, you know, one of Ryan's other dear friends right, that Nicholas. passed away right, right. after Emily. Um, that goes back to the fact that kids can be from normal, average families and have something horrific happen. And the thing that I learned uh, and that Ryan taught us, Ryan taught us so many things that we didn't realize till after his death, but one of them was that recovery is not a guarantee. It doesn't last a lifetime. And the thing that's scary about what's going on in the world right now, Angela, is that, you know, Ryan should have just gotten sick. Instead, he died. And there's no honor among thieves. You know, as we were going through the criminal justice system with with charging his dealer, um, there's uh, people don't know what they're selling. And what was the result? Do, was anybody ever held accountable? Uh, there was uh, in Minnesota. It's a state level crime, which is different uh, from state to state. It, it's third degree murder. You know, and I remember when the police officer called me and said, "We've charged somebody with th- third degree murder." My first reaction was, "I said, well, he wasn't shot." which seems totally inappropriate, but you don't think of an overdose death as being murder. Well, when there's fentanyl. Yeah, there's fentanyl. And um, the the case was worked by the Ramsey County State's Attorney for nearly a year, which, to their credit, really tried to get to the... The the end result is always to try to get to the kingpin of all of this. And in the end, the charges had had to be dropped. Let's turn to grief now. The effect will never go away. And so I think when you look like you're doing okay, when you, you're holding that job and you're taking care of this and you're socializing or doing whatever, are you really okay? You know, it's it's interesting you say that. Uh, I get The comment I get a lot, and I don't, you know, this is nothing egotistical, is that, wow, you're just far more brave and courageous than I could ever be. And it really has nothing to do with bravery or being courageous as much as it does just continuing to move on. There are so many things that I look at other families who have lost a child or anyone to addiction or to any death, and you always try to compare yourself, well, what if he would have, uh, you know, not gone through treatment, or what if this, or what if that? The bottom line is that they're still gone. And so while I have a lot of peace, knowing that it wasn't like we patted ourselves on the back and said we're family of the year because our child went through treatment, because we know that that's not a forever thing. But what's hard is in those quiet moments when I, um, you know, as I mentioned, I travel a lot. Uh, Ryan and I would talk on the phone for hours when I traveled. And I was just recently in a part of the country that I had been in almost that same route in January of uh, 2018. And I can, I can drive between Indianapolis and Terre Haute, Indiana on I-74 and remember exactly the conversation I was having with Ryan. That's when grief overwhelms me. 
um, when people say, you know, well-meaning people will say, and they probably have said to you too, oh, it'll get better. Grief never gets better. It doesn't matter if you lost a child uh, before they were born, they were five years old, you lost your mother or your father. Grief is untamed and it doesn't, it, it is not any indicator of you as a person and how strong you are because it can nail you when you least expect it. And, love, and that's happened for me lately, especially with the milestone of Ryan's 28th birthday being a couple weeks ago. Right. He would have been 28. He'd and been 28. And I, I spent the day um, doing what I love in my job and serving others. But that night in a Holiday Inn Express parking lot in St. Louis, Missouri, I bawled for two hours. And it wasn't like it was cleansing. It wasn't, it wasn't forced, but it just comes over you. And you're like, you, you almost feel like, I feel human, I, you know, because you may have been kind of shoving your grief back in the corner. A lot, we tend to do that, but it, it just comes out and rears its ugly face uh, when you least expect it. Yeah, 28, and Emily would have been 23 in March, so that's coming up, and you just dread those anniversaries. You do. You do. I love what you said, grief is untamed, and, is. and that is really true. I think we can sort of, like you said, push it down, push it aside, and then it comes, I liken it, some people liken it to a wave, but I liken it to a gut punch. So I was just driving along just the other night. I had worked a full day, normal day. I had gone about doing all, I mean, it's not like I don't think of her all the time. Right. Of course I do. And of course you think of Ryan. But you're, you're kind of able to put it in a box, right? And you, and you do what you're supposed to do. And you're, you're a mom and you're a wife and you're an employee. And you know, you're doing all these things. You clean the house, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, a thought or something you see triggers a thought or smell, or hear, or whatever it is. And it's like you just can't get back to the level that you were. It just pulls you down into the sea of grief. And my heart physically hurts. I totally agree. And it it has nothing to do with being the heart of a mom. It's the heart of a human being. It's somebody is gone. And, you know, when I'm experiencing great great moments of joy in my day-to-day life. I would just want to, I just sometimes want to just scream at the heavens and say, damn it, Ryan, you should be here to enjoy this with your, you and your, uh, our family. Right. The good times the are good hard times, and the, the bad times exactly. are hard. It's all hard. Exactly. Once you have a death, how all of a sudden you are so hypersensitive to how to grieve, how to do this, how to do that. You're, you're, you're involved in social media groups trying to get answers about making sense out of it. But the one thing that I have found is that there is a great deal of support to be found in being transparent, keeping your feelings under wrap. I mean, now, you know, there are a lot of people that are very private. They want to hide. Uh, there, there's a lot of shame in having a child who was an addict. But it doesn't make me or you feel better talking about it. But again, it goes back to that's part of our healing and our grieving process is making a difference in the lives of others. It's all in, you know, how you frame it up and what you feel called to do. And one of the things I want to mention before we end this conversation is that you are keeping Ryan's spirit alive by donating a piano to a local recovery center here. So that is a really cool thing that you did in his honor. It was it was really interesting. As I mentioned earlier, um, Hazelden has long had the reputation of being where professional musicians go to dry out. And but the right one thing Ryan mentioned was, you know, for a place like this, they named the pool at Hazelden after Eric Clapton, but there's no piano. And there was a program in St. Paul that year, which I've shared on social media, which was called Pianos in Public Places. Ryan could never walk by a piano without not wanting to stop and play. He played by ear. 
And so after his death, you don't immediately want to immortal. What are we going to have the legacy of our child be? Well, we'll do something. We'll name something. But our family has been involved with Avera for many years, both as an employee. Uh, Ryan was born at Avera. Avera has been there for our family in good times and bad. So when the announcement of the Addiction Care Center came up, Ryan was still alive. And what he was so proud of was the fact that Avera had stepped forward to take the medical model of addiction treatment seriously. Right, it needs to be treated it needs, within the needs medical to be, system. It needs to be done that. Um, my youngest daughter is a nurse in Minneapolis, and and she's on a crusade that it, this is no different than if your loved one is diagnosed with diabetes or cancer. Is that a character flaw? Uh, addiction is the same way. Until we change that stigma... We are going to continue to mask the treatment for that. So it made sense to us to donate this piano, and um, we we had a great deal of joy doing that, as I know you did, uh, in, you know, making a donation on Emily's behalf and what you've done for Avera. We have mirrored that with uh, the donation of a musical gift as well as funds that will go into to provide scholarships because for many people, the barrier of the co-pays and and just a lot of different expenses that come up are are prohibitive. And if we can help make a difference for those other families, Ryan, Ryan did not die in vain. Right. And I feel that it is a place that's appropriate and healing to put our grief in helping others. Absolutely. It's a way to channel it. Exactly. If I'm ever asked for advice for somebody who has a huge amount of grief, well, what are you doing differently? I think the one thing that has been very helpful is, uh, you know, everybody who you've ever worked with, your family, all of your personal interactions in your entire life, when you've got something horrific that happens in your life, those people come around you like a cocoon. And that has probably been uh, the most amazing gift that our friends and family and people that we've worked with or, you know, our children are adults now. They have their own spheres of influence. And so to have people come and surround you, a lot of times people don't know what to say. They say things that maybe are... Well, I'm so glad that that's been your experience, it though. Has You've been. had people surround you because not everybody gets that. No, they don't. And and that's the... So even if it's the being kind to a stranger, I've had... I, like you, I've had people reach out to me who have gotten my contact information and have asked me to contact them. And these are people that I've never met, but the common denominator is they have a story similar. And just hearing from somebody else that it's okay and we're all going to get through this can be so comforting. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing Ryan's story, for everything you're doing in terms of speaking out about it, and also for the piano donation and the scholarship money, and that's wonderful. And and I share your grief, and I thank you for being a friend. Oh, I thank you too, Angela. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.